This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. One of the moments of cinematic majesty that runs through my brain often is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> There's a scene when, <laughs> when Arthur's walking up on some peasants who are working, and here's how the exchange goes. King Arthur says, Old woman! And this man named Dennis says, Man! <laughs> and he says, Man, sorry. And then he says, What knight lives over in that castle over there? And Dennis says, I'm 37. <laughs> and Arthur goes, I, what? Um, I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't call you man. Well, you could call me Dennis. Well, I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? <laughs> I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you, anyway. Uh, what I <laughs> and then Dennis says, "What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior." Well, I am a king. Oh, a king. Yeah, very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By so anyway, it goes on from there. And it's a great illustration of um, what we think of how tact is an essential part of life. T-A-C-T, tact. Researchers in Canada have studied different personality types. And in 2018, they found that among teenagers, that a lack of tact was actually worse than a lack of popularity. I mean, they surveyed this. I mean, think about that. That not having tact is uh, worse than not being popular. Uh, if you don't know how to be tactful, there's uh, WikiHow is a website, Wikipedia. WikiHow is telling you how to do things in life. And there's a 15-step guide on how to be tactful with pictures. Um, so, yeah, some of you are like, well, there goes the sermon today. I'm on WikiHow now. Uh, <laughs> I remember, this is maybe the greatest illustration. I had a friend... Uh, who didn't get tact very well. And I asked them at one point to define tact. And they said, well, oh, that's easy. When I see a problem, I just attacked it. <sighs> right. And on and on we could go, uh, whether it's Monty Python or just some real life experience where we've had that where someone didn't have go. And it's much more severe uh, this lack of tact, we can laugh and it's all fun and games, but when we're walking al alongside someone who's going through suffering and we fail to have tact, that is a huge deal. Uh, tact, tact is defined as a keen sense of what to do or say to maintain good relations with others and avoid offense. So we're trying to say things. We're trying to serve in the moment. Um, and I, So I hope you can see how important tact is when we come alongside others. And so to get there, to talk about all this this morning with suffering and the wicked, we're studying the book of Job together as a church family. We've introduced themes. We've, we've put ourselves into Job's precarious predicament. We've walked through Job's lament, and we've seen his friends answer. Um, last, we, we've seen Job answer his friends last week in Job chapter 9. Today we're going to hear an example of some of the madness and some of the craziness that these friends bring up. So in this series, we needed to do one example. Now, uh, if you're looking to write an Old Testament doctoral paper to contribute to the study of the book of Job, you could probably dissect um, 
what Job's friends are saying and write something very intriguing for the scholarly world. Um, I think if you read through the book of Job, you can see that there's just really one thing that they're after, and it, it could be summarized as maybe a lack of tact. They just don't get it in the moment. They're not um, where they need to be. Um, so today we're gonna dig deeper into a chapter that unpacks how one of his friends, that the name Bildad the Shuhite, so I, again, I wanna work this joke for all of its worth, the, young, the, the sh- shortest person in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite, I'm trying to get all this out of the way because the sermon's really going to be serious when we get there. Uh, Bildad the Shuhite is talking with Job, and um, I hope he's. I hope the insights that he gives us related to suffering and the wicked are helpful. And now um, I think it would probably be a good time to remind you that the book of Job is a long book. So somebody came up to me this week and said they they were able to sit down and read this in about an hour. Um, It's hard to engage concentration for an hour in what's going on in the book of Job, but this person is commendable. Um, It's a long book, and I think part of God's design for us as his people, he's building patience and bandwidth towards others by giving us a book that's 42 chapters to talk about suffering. He wants us to linger. He wants us to realize that it's not so much getting one thing right or another. Um, And he wants us to have a better sense of engaging with others. So one more thing um, that I just remembered. Uh, David Pallison, in answer to the question, how does God's grace engage your sufferings? Here's what he says. We may know the right answer, and yet we don't know it. It's a hard answer. But we make it sound like a pat answer, that God sets about a long, slow answering. But we try to make it a quick fix. God's answer insists on being lived out over time and into the particulars. We act as if just saying the right words makes it so. God's answer insists on changing you into a different kind of person. But we act as if some truth, some principle, some strategy, or some perspective might simply be incorporated into who we already are. But God personalizes his answer on hearts with an uncanny flexibility. We turn it into a formula that if you just believe X... If you just do X, if you could just remember X, and here's Pallison's summary, which kind of gets us into where we're headed today, I think. No important truth, no important truth ever contains the word just in the punchline. No important truth ever contains the word just in the punchline. So this is where we're headed today in Job 18. Uh, And if you look with me, if you're in Job 18, can you just let your eyes go up a few verses to Job 17, verse 13? And that's what this person, what Bildad's going to answer. So in Job 17, 13, here's what we read. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you're my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? So you can really see how much Job is longing for comfort. He needs someone to come alongside him. He is languishing. He needs hope. He He realizes that if his hope is going to be the place of death, like Sheol, then that's just the darkness. If he puts confidence in the pit, like that he's going to die and this is the end, how's that gonna help him? How could he have hope? How can hope be instilled in him? 
And so what would you come and say to Job if you were gonna come alongside him? What would it look like for you to come alongside him? And this is the immediate context that Bildad is addressing. So I'm gonna make the point that Bildad is saying a true thing at the wrong moment or he's wrongly applying it. So we need to understand what Job needs in chapter 17 verses 13 through 16. So to lay out my cards on the table, this comfort that Bildad is gonna give, and I put that in the air quotes, this comfort that Bildad's gonna give is not good. But by and large, everything that Bildad is saying is true. Um, so what we're wrestling with in the sermon today is tact. How do we say the right thing at the right moment for a good effect? How do we use valid words appropriately with people who are suffering? So... Um, I'd be curious as, uh, to know where are you placing your hope if you don't want to relate to God through Jesus? When you're going through suffering, where are you placing your hope? I imagine your hope might be in something like relief from suffering, <clears throat> a reprieve from it, or maybe good news rather than bad news, all kinds of other things. And today, Bildad's words about the suffering and the wicked, I think... Um, He's specifically telling us what the demise of the wicked is apart from the mercy that's found in Jesus. I think this is gonna be helpful for you just to know what awaits you someday. <clears throat> and if you're a believer, Bildad affirms that God punishes the wicked. So we have to figure out who the wicked are and what this means as they relate to God. And so I hope this sermon um, leads you to good news that finds you too. So this is where we're headed today. Um, two true statements that can be misapplied in suffering. That's where we're headed. So let me read Job 18, and then we'll unpack this and um, keep moving. So Job 18, two true statements that can be misapplied in suffering. So this is Bildad's answer. How can you have hope? Seems so worthless. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we'll speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken to you or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of the fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes thrown, throw him down for he's cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel and, snare, and a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Tears frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He's torn from his tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He's thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them in the, of the East. Sur surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. 
So two true statements that can be misapplied in suffering. Our passage opens with a true statement that can easily be misapplied in suffering. And that opening statement is that God establishes order in the universe. That's in verses one through four. This is Bildad's answer. And he begins with what one writer describes as waxing eloquent about the spiritual terrors of wicked people. So at the start of this passage, he's, this is someone begging for help, someone who's pressing to have hope against hope. Uh, so we're kind of, this is how Bildad is coming alongside the person who's on the high rise ledge, um, maybe considering suicide. And Bildad's been dispatched to encourage them to try to assist them in this moment. And in verse two, Bildad says, why are you blabbing on and on? Do you think you got life figured out? And he's also laying out an order that God establishes the universe. Shall the earth be forsaken or, the, or was the rock removed from its place? And his point is that there's nothing in the universe that isn't ordered and precisely where or what God intends it to do. That God is up to what he's doing. So suffering, we talked about this last week, suffering coming your way, it's not like God just caught a siesta and this one slipped through the cracks. No, everything in the universe is ordered exactly the way God intends it to be. And this is a vital foundation marker for Bildad. The rest of the chapter flows out of this established reality that God's established an end for the wicked, that God orders the universe. And he, I think he's quite right to press this into the forefront of Job's thinking. But you can hear that he's on the attack and frustrated with Job, right, in these opening four verses. You can hear um, that he's not listening. He's, he's sharing the truth out of frustration. And I can tell you as a pastor who's blown it many times, when we share what is true, even out of frustration, we can't divorce reality from the heart. Um, it rarely works with hurting people. It rarely works with people in general, just to speak truth out of frustration. So his point right at the outset here is God's, hey, you're hurting, you need hope, trust God. He's, he's established this. He, he's established order in the universe. Like he's got this under control. It's basically what he's saying. There's everything that God does is for a reason. You feel like you're going to Sheol, you feel like you're going to death, Feel like the light's being snuffed out? Well, this is point two. Uh, Secondly and finally, much of the passage unpacks another truth that's misapplied in suffering, and that is the unrighteous get hell. In other words, his encouragement. I know this this is gonna boggle your mind. I mean, you're gonna think, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Are you kidding me? Bildad's encouragement to someone who has no hope is, you're going to hell. And all of us in the room were like, what? How did this slip through the cracks of the Bible? Uh, anyway, just listen to what he says. His encouragement of Job continues. Listen to how he's encouraging him. Because God has established order in the universe, he lets Job know of the place in the created order of the universe where God has destined that wicked dwell forever. So Job's been talking about light, and so he needs to be reminded that this place that God's prepared in the universe for the wicked is a place of darkness. This is where it's dark and fire isn't shining, where the light is dim and the lamp is out. In other words, Job, you need some hope? Well, consider what God's up to. The absence of light is where the wicked dwell. 
in a place of darkness. This is where you are. Further, it's a place of punishment um, where long steps get shortened. Long steps get, or strong steps get shortened. Verse seven, a place of punishment where schemes are thwarted. And Job, this is Bildad talking, Job, your life has gotten you there. You're trapped there by the net that God himself has cast. You know, God's caught you in it. You can feel the mesh under your feet and you've been caught up into what God's done. The trap has been set and you've been caught and you're destined to be in a place of punishment. Third, it's also a place of terrors where all strength is zapped. So in verse 12, um, it says the strength is famished. I'd like zapped better. Uh, a place where strength is zapped and we stumble. Um, your skin is wasting away. Your firstborn is wasting away in the grave. This is the kind of place that God has established for wicked people. You might have trusted at some point in a secure place, but this place where you're going is anywhere but safe. Roots and branches are dried up there. Memory of you perishes there. And Job, you may have a well-known name when it comes to this world, but that's not gonna be present where you're going. And if the spiral didn't go down further, it ends by saying that this is a place of separation. So you're driven from your home, driven from your home, no habitation, thrust from light into darkness, driven out of the world. Um, verse 18, no posterity, no progeny among his people. It's a place of separation. You're driven out of the world from light into darkness. There's no legacy left. There's no survivors. You're separated from that life that you knew as far as the east is from the west. So you see that in verse 20? You know, you had a life that you knew where God was smiling upon you. And I think this is Bildad talking because you did the right things, God rewarded that. Now you're facing suffering, you've done all the wrong things and God's punishing that accordingly. That's what God does. So these two lives that you've had are separated as far as the east is from the west. It's a place of separation. People are now horrified at your existence. They're not blessed by it. This is the location where the unrighteous dwell, the place for those who don't know God. The place that God has established for the wicked is where Job is because there is no room in Bildad's world for undeserved suffering. Undeserved suffering. Job must have done something to stir up God's anger. And therefore, everything we know about God, he's established order in the universe, he's created a place for the wicked to dwell. Um, this is where you're headed. That's why this place exists, to glorify God's greatness in judgment so that the wicked can be punished and God can be glorified as a righteous judge. And his point to Job is, if you're suffering, you must be headed to hell. Now, I hope it's readily apparent as to why this isn't good news for sinners or sufferers. Um, on top of the lack of tact, we have to deal with other realities in scripture. Like Jesus himself faced a lot of like what Job was facing. So like in Matthew and Mark, uh, Mark 15, 33, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, Mark writes down, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, so if the light is removed and it's darkness now, 
and that's proof that Job is going to hell. Well, then we gotta do something with Jesus. Like Jesus certainly doesn't deserve hell. Jesus certainly doesn't deserve this, but yet he's facing this abandonment from God. He's facing this darkness. Or in Matthew 20, 23, um, James and John are arguing over who's gonna be the greatest and, and Jesus says to them, you know, this is for who it's reserved. Um, are you ready to drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? And they say, yeah, we're ready. And he says, you will drink my cup, but to sit in my right and left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. In other words, drinking the cup of this suffering and wickedness, James, John, Jesus, they're facing this. And it's not just like the punishment that's being doled out to them for what they have done wrong. So it doesn't fit with Jesus. Um, Jesus did go to the place of darkness on the cross and he didn't deserve it. And he did drink the bitter cup of God's wrath, but it didn't come to him because he deserved it. This is the whole thing that Bildad's not connecting. It's not because uh, Job deserves this. This is undeserved suffering. Jesus faced this. And I think um, if you're going through suffering and this is how you feel, like maybe you heard chapter 18, you're saying, this is all how I feel. I feel like I'm in a place of darkness. I feel like there's separation. I feel like a life I once knew is like far removed from where Jesus knows that. And Jesus not only knows it intuitively, he knows it experientially. He went there. He went to a place of darkness and experienced the father's abandonment. He drank a cup of wrath that he didn't deserve. So if you like, I wish somebody could get me, you got a savior who get, gets you, Jesus. He gets you, he's been there and done this. <laughs> where where we're, we deserve it right, it's like a thief on the cross, like this man's done nothing to be punished for this. We deserve this, we're actually thieves. You know, this man's done nothing. This is kind of the witness of that other thief on the cross in, in Luke. Um, you know, he gets it, but yes, he's facing this. Why is he facing this? I think it's so that when we experience the hell of Job 18, we know that we have a savior who's been there. Oh, it's so encouraging. We don't have to face it alone because it's all been laid on Jesus for us. Even like Romans 8, 23, when, it, when we think about our lives as believers, uh, Romans 8, 23, it says not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul's saying is there's gonna be an experience of suffering in this world apart from you inheriting all the promises that God's established for you. You're a son, but you've tasted the first fruits. You're gonna know that fully one day in glory. But there's a groaning now. Oh, just one who would depart, I'm done with this. Bildad would come along to you and say, yeah, you're done with this? No. You must be wicked, see in hell. And Paul's saying, no, it's the experience of believers. Like God's done all this for you and you're gonna face this and um, there's gonna be a groaning inwardly and that shouldn't make you scratch your head and go, I must be an unbeliever. It's not separate. What can separate you from the love of God? <laughs> I mean, later in Romans eight, right? Shall trouble or trial or hardship or tribulation, any of this? No. None of that's able to separate us from God. So whether we deserve it or not, we are groaning inwardly. Like whether we deserve the suffering we're facing or not, we are groaning inwardly. We're waiting for the full effects of God's redemptive activity to come to us. 
we can't say that it's well-deserved for us, or we can't, say that, we can't say that it's undeserved when it comes to us. Um, suffering is part of what we're gonna experience in the already and not yet of God's promises coming to fruition. So it's, it's not like we're just like Job where we're facing all this and it's, we're groaning inwardly because we're just wicked people. No, we're groaning inwardly because that's the norm for believers. We're, we're meant to inherit something well beyond this and our experience is, it's not there yet. So am I going to hell? No, Paul's just saying you're groaning inwardly because you know there's something better for you <laughs> that's coming. Now, I think coming up with the outline for the sermon was really difficult. Like, what do we make of Bildad's words? And most everybody that I read on this is saying, like, what he's saying is true. Like, uh, as a church, we, we believe that hell is a real place. For people who want to reject God, this is what awaits them. So it's not like Bildad's making up some figment from the magical land of make-believe that is not real. I mean... The, the closing four or five chapters of the Bible are pointing to this reality, that it's real, that hell is a real place. And if you choose to reject Jesus with your life, this is where you're headed. Um, this is the challenge that Job's, or uh, Bildad's onto some sort of truth. There is a place that God's created where unrighteous face eternal punishment for rejecting God. But that location is secured for them, not just because they did more good than bad, so this is kind of how other world religions might tend to think of it. It's you know, more good than bad, then we get what's coming to us. The Bible would say that all unrighteous people are headed there apart from the gracious intervention of God. And God in his graciousness has extended mercy to anyone who will believe, to anyone who says, I don't want that, I want Jesus. To anyone who believes in him, they escape this. This is not the reality. Anyone who gives up the rebellion and embraces Jesus Christ as their savior and Lord escapes this, escapes hell, escapes this place of torment, this place of darkness, this place of separation. So unexplained suffering is another category altogether though. And this is the question that I've gotten most uh, so far in the book of Job, because most of us in this room, we want to have tact. We don't want to be King Arthur, you know, clopping up to the political peasants and then saying something foolish. We want to be helpful. So what do I say? I've heard a lot of you say, so what do I say in this moment? And uh, when, when I'm coming alongside someone who's in suffering, so that's why I put a book on the back of your notes. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I didn't know how else to do it. So um, how do we speak to people who are going through suffering? What is, if Bildad's not getting it right, what is the right way? And uh, this is Eric Orland. He's a Ray Orland's son who he teaches at Oak Hill College in England. Um, great guy. I've talked to him a couple times on email back and forth. Anytime I'm working through Old Testament, I usually send him an email like, you got any notes on this book that might be helpful for, for me or anything I need to read? And he's very gracious. He sent me uh, <laughs> the book of Job in Hebrew so I could translate it for myself. Um, I'm like, are you one of Job's friends? <laughs> so anyway, just crazy stuff. But he wrote a book that we have on our book table out there called Suffering Wisely and Well. And in this book, he's trying, he has a chapter devoted to all of Job's friends and how they think through this. And at the conclusion of that chapter, he's saying, so 
how do we speak rightly? And I think he says this well. There's other resources that get at this. I'll talk about that in a second. But we're wondering like, okay, what does it look like for me to come alongside someone who's suffering? And so here's his things. And number one, don't blame the sufferer. Number two, just as suffering comes in different kinds, we need to speak about it differently. For example, someone, sometimes we suffer for sins and need to be encouraged to repent. Sometimes we need encouragement to persist in the hard training God's putting us through to grow us. So again, I think it begins with knowing what kind of suffering is this person going through? And it's not always just the first answer, like, well, you know, God must be working something in your heart. What do we need to repent of, you know? I think it's just lingering with someone long enough that we're not blaming them, but we're saying, is there something here that you need to repent of? And by the way, if, you've, if you're causing suffering in someone else's life, your gut reaction shouldn't be, well, you just need to get over that. You know, yeah, I wronged you, let's move on. You know, no, it's repentance, right? If you know that that's the case for you, your gut instinct should be to repent, to turn, to say, God, I want a right relationship with you and I've hurt this person. Um, so sometimes we need to, we suffer for sins and we need to be encouraged to repent. Sometimes it's persisting that God is trying to grow us. He has wise reasons in doing it. And sometimes we're facing suffering and it's unexplained suffering. And I would say that's one reason I wanted to look at this book because so much of what we've dealt with in the body uh, to my knowledge, based on talking with people through suffering and, and just walking through it with them, it's not because there's some sin issue that God's trying to refine in their life. He's not trying to provoke them to repentance. Again, with my limited understanding, I'm not as smart as Job's friends and I'm not God. So um, it's not that God's working repentance or not that God is doing this, dropping anchor so that he can really grow you. We have so many people who have faced unexplained suffering and what has God up to? And we're just scratching our heads going, oh, I don't know. And we almost feel guilty that we don't know. Like there's no answer for that. I don't know what God was doing. And so uh, suffering comes in different kinds and we need to speak about that differently. Uh, number three, don't blame, don't blame. Number four, we can speak to friends suffering in Job-like ways, so unexplained suffering, with the best of intentions, with pastoral tact, we can invoke factual theological statements supported by scripture, and we can get it so completely wrong in such a way that it provokes God's terrible anger at us. So this is uh, Job 42, seven to eight. God has a word for those of us who think that we have to dot the theological I's and cross the theological T's especially when we're wrong. Like, God's not like, oh, you blew it, that's a bummer. No, God's saying like, how dare you? <laughs> so 42, seven to eight, we'll get to that eventually. Um, so what happens is we invoke all this and we get it so completely wrong that we're torturing someone with our words. And God's thoughts towards them are happy. God is delighting in that child. And we're saying, you're actually going to hell. It's actually time to repent. It's actually, God's growing you. So just do this to the Palestine quote, right? And we just need to linger. We need to linger. We need to be very careful. Uh, the other thing that's more sinister at the end of, uh, the end of point four there is, we're actually advancing the devil's agenda towards them. That used to be my joke whenever somebody said they wanted to be the devil's advocate. I was like, don't be his advocate. He's got enough people. Like, I don't wanna hear this. Are you kidding me? 
But that was more my issue than them. Uh, so, um, but I think most of us in this room, when we're coming alongside someone in suffering, we don't want to be on the devil's team in this. We don't want to be like advancing, like Satan says, oh, they just, they just love you because God gives you all the good things. And we're like, saying the same thing. Like if you just pull your act together, God would get you out of this. Are we not just advancing the devil's agenda? Are we just not bringing from the heavenly courts to the earthly reality what Satan has said? So just be careful. Um, be careful. Which relates to number five. You should be very suspicious of yourself, unceasingly so. The temptation to comfort ourselves is so sneaky that we must never stop asking ourselves when talking to a suffering friend, the thing I'm about to say, who am I trying to make feel better, my friend or myself? Oh, man. I can tell you, as a pastor that loves you all, I've been in so many situations where that has been the reality. I've wanted to say something, but it was so that I could go home and sleep at night, not that I was thinking of them. I wanted to serve myself, so we just have to be careful. Um, number six, no blame. I wonder why he says that. Um, so yeah, number one, number one, don't blame the sufferer. Number three, don't blame. Number six, no blame. So don't do that. That's, I think, the biggest critique of all of Job's friends. They're all saying, the reason why is you, Job. It's your fault. And God's saying, I, sorry you're so foolish, friends. <laughs> so don't blame. Just don't let that come out of your mouth. Number seven, it's not until God speaks to Job and Job is satisfied, comforted, and reconciled to God in God's way of running the world. Um, yeah, it's not until God speaks that Job is satisfied, comforted, and reconciled to God and God's way of running the world. That's the end of the thought. So um, in the same way, God's going to meet with a brother or sister living out Job's story and comfort him or her as only he can. God's role means that your role is not to fix or to solve your friends or to silence their protests or to resolve their trauma. Only God can do that. So let's just give room for God to work. Let's, again, some of you were thinking, I, but I wanna say something that would be helpful. You know, hopefully, don't blame and just put confidence in God. We, we get to something you can say here at the bottom. So. Number eight, resist the temptation to lecture your friends and correct some crazy things that, to say, that they say. We talked about that last week, right? God will see to that in his own time and in his own gentle way. Like God's better at drawing out the hard things that need to be said. He doesn't need like an Elijah in this moment to come alongside and straighten these people, straighten Job out. Um, he's gonna send an Elijah kind of figure in the 30, in the chapter 30s in Elihu He's gonna send someone who's kinda of gonna be, begin to be God's spokesperson so that we can prepare for God's speeches. <clears throat> but resist the temptation to lecture them and correct some of the crazy things they say. And people are gonna say crazy things in, this, in the midst of suffering. Just prepare for that. And just realize that you're freed. Let, let God be God. Let God run the universe, okay? Let, let him, just give him space to do his thing. <laughs> like, he's really good at it. Um, so let's let God do that. And let's just be alongside our friends. Let's resist the temptation to lecture them. Number nine, find ways to speak to your friends about how God does not hate them, no matter how much it might look like it, and that the ordeal they're going through will not last forever. 
however nightmarish their lives have become, God will restore them. Even if their wounds are so profound that they feel no possible, <clears throat> no possible turn of events will ever compensate for their losses, God is an expert at restoring permanent tragedy. He has done so with his own dear son. However long it takes, he will act. This work means that the best thing you can say is, let me wait for you in this moment for God to restore you. Let's just, let me just be here with you. I know God's leaping over the world crazy for you. And this is not a trying to, he's not showing his cards here to put you in your place. He loves you. So that's a way you can speak. Uh, and there are other resources. I mean, Luke and I were talking about this week, just books we could pull off our shelf with people who give practical. So I think Nancy Guthrie has a book on suffering that uh, say this, don't say this. Say this, don't say this. Ask questions, don't do this. So there's all kinds of resources out there. I liked Eric's because it was all tied to Job and his thoughtful meditation on that. Uh, what to say to a sufferer. My appeal is that um, you would act towards others with tact. Speak what's beneficial. And you might think, well, uh, that's a nice convenient application. No, it's actually what Paul told the church in Ephesus, like Ephesians 4. Listen to this. I mean, just think about how this filters through the, the sieve of, of somebody going through suffering. Uh, Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So he takes us back to the gospel. Like you kind of know how to speak because this is how God's treated you. So just come alongside people, like with that, let no corrupting talk. What's good for the moment? Now, I know some of you who are astute biblical people might want to go up a couple verses and say, you know, what about that whole speaking the truth, you know, in love and all this? I think it's really clarified by these verses. So yeah, I don't think we're, I don't think, I hope you don't hear me saying that the truth shouldn't be on your mind and heart, but verses 29 and to 32 are equally truth for you. Um, so just be mindful of that. So in conclusion, wrapping this up, um, we've seen two true statements that can be misapplied in suffering. And the two true statements are this, that God has established order in the universe and the unrighteous get hell. Uh, we've been deep into the depths of this. The hard truth from Job 18 is that this is an excellent sermon. Job 18 is an excellent sermon on the realities of hell, but it's wrongly applied. The application for anyone in this room is this. The wages of sin are death. So if you're gonna live your life for sin, if you're gonna live your life for your own agenda and not for God, the wages of sin, this is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God will surely punish sin. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to stay in the realm of death. You don't have to say, well, you said the wages of sin is death. Yes, what I'm saying, and I want to equally trumpet is, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we would love for you to escape all that reality 
to escape the reality of what God will do. He will punish the wicked. Some of you are worried about this world. I can't believe we're going this direction. Hey, God's got this. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's live in that. Let's invite people to that. You know, it's a great thing. Turn to God and find him dispensing mercy. He's just giving it out. You know, hey, you want mercy? Here it is, I got it. It never runs out. I got it for everyone in this room. Anyone who will come and just say, Jesus, have mercy on me. They're gonna find mercy from him. I mean, it's incredible. So don't walk out of here saying this morning, like pastor said, I'm going to hell. We are all going to hell apart from Jesus. But Jesus has come. We can believe in him. And the moment we believe in him and say, God, have mercy on me. He's like, great, you're rescued. I free you from that. That does not have to be the word over your life. So turn to him and find him giving mercy. For any who trusts in Jesus, compassion is readily applied to you. So will you believe that? That's the challenge. Will you believe that, that it's this simple, that God will dispense mercy in this? Will you put all your confidence for escaping hell's terrors in Jesus Christ our Lord? It's just that simple. I don't want hell. I don't want you to want hell either. So just believe in Jesus. Turn from your own way. And if you're a believer, Bildad's words should provoke a desire for tact in you. Or at least, a, maybe not even tact, maybe just the desire to speak well to others. I know a lot of you already feel this. This is the question I'm asked in the hall. You're okay, how can I speak well? I don't want to be one of those guys. <laughs> yes, I don't want you to be one of them either. Um, and I don't want to be one either. So if you want to speak well, don't model yourself after Bildad. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He was the greatest when speaking with tact in the moment. So you wanna, be, you wanna deal with someone who's staunchly self-righteous and who has all kinds of confidence in themselves. Those are the people who are met with Jesus' stiffest words. You got all this figured out, you know, like a lawyer, hey, what's the greatest law in all the Bible? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's easy. Love God, love your neighbors, you do yourself. Well, I don't even know who my neighbor is. Well, there's, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> so Jesus is pressing the issue like that, right? Those are the people that Jesus is kind of, mm, come on, you know, we're not gonna play these games. You know better, you know what the word says. But for any sinner or sufferer who came to Jesus, I, I don't know, in the Bible, there's no sinner or sufferer that comes to him that he's just like, talk to the hand, you know, adios, hit the road, muchacho. This is a different country. He's not doing that to anyone. Anytime a sinner or sufferer is coming, saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. He's ready. He's there. He's dispensing mercy. He's offering mercy and kindness at great personal inconvenience to himself. You know, just always allowing himself to be inconvenienced. Always mindful of what's needed in the moment. Um, and so he's offering mercy and kindness. That's how he lived. But even more than that, he tasted suffering and he went to the cross so that he's not just some aloof God up in the sky, but he is an entirely sympathetic savior to you. He's one who's been tempted in every way, like us, yet without sin. So let's walk in him. Let's walk like him. Let's lean into him for the right words and find him helpful. Let's let our heart for sinners and sufferers uh, be informed by Jesus. And just how he's so bending over backwards, how is he doing this? Well, he's got in the flesh, but he's fully human too. I mean, he's, he's wanting to, 
There's times he's skipping meals to serve people and he's doing this and he's not getting on whatever they called Twitter back then. Um, you know, whatever. He's not getting on the quail app and saying, um, well, skipped another lunch break to her, serve a dear brother today. <laughs> you know, uh, It's not how he was. He's just doing this. Nobody knew about it. We just... just and then on top of that, just going to the cross for us. I mean, there's some of you in this room, and I know you're going through suffering, and I know your thought is, nobody gets it. Like, I'm just angry. Nobody, I don't even know where to turn. I don't even know what to say. And like, who are the people who've gone through this in the exact same way I have? Nobody. You know, you have a savior who's been there. I mean, this is so incredible that Christianity, we believe that we have a God who got in the game. He came down to earth, he lived this. And after living perfection, he went to the cross, faced suffering, faced suffering in his life. Just people talking behind his back and misjudging his motives and all this. He did all this for you and me so that we can worship a God who's not just aloof up there, but a God who, he's faced everything you face yet without sin. So, our heart for sinners and sufferers is that they would know Jesus and make him known to others. And might that come full circle as we seek to have our eyes on Jesus himself. And as we do, we glorify and enjoy him forever.